Would you take your Bible and join me in turning to Philippians chapter 1? And what we're going to look at this morning, this is Paul's introduction as he sets the table for what he's about to write to the Philippian believers. We need these words of encouragement and admonishment from God's Word this morning. So, would you join me in a word of prayer before we consider our text this morning? Father, this is Your Word. I pray that You would take it and plant it inside of us, that it might bear fruit in our lives, that we might be changed by Your Word as we study it and focus our attention on it this morning. Holy Spirit, guide us. Shape us that we might become more like Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt, many of us have traveled over the summer so far. Whether you've flown or driven places, you have had opportunity to travel. If you've flown on a plane, you are used to those pre-flight checks, right? The attendants get up in the aisle and they they do the, the six emergency exits, two in the front, two over the wing, two over the back exit, or you know maybe there's eight exits. And then they go through the emergency evacuation procedures. If, if we have to have a water landing, there's life jackets under your seat. In the event that we lose cabin air pressure, there will be these oxygen masks that will drop out of the ceiling. And they'll fall in front of you and put yours on first and then put your child's on. Have you ever observed the people around you as those instructions are being given? They have their headphones in. They're already watching shows. They're busy in conversation. I would venture to say that most people know about the oxygen masks or the life jackets under them. But do they actually think they're going to need them? To most flyers, the, the masks and the vests are nice things to have, but they're not necessary for the flight. What's necessary is making sure my tablet's charged, that I've brought books with me, and that my headphones have a full set of battery. Isn't that sometimes how we can view prayer? We can view it as a nice thing to have, but not something that's necessary for us. It's good in case of emergencies or difficulties, but it just sits there until we actually need it. What does prayer look like in your life? Is it something confined to mealtimes and emergencies? Do you actually think your prayers are effective or are they just kind of a flimsy coping mechanism in your life? It's how you deal with things. You, you pray when stuff comes up. Is your prayer defensive? In other words, you only use it to ask God for things when life gets hard? Or is your prayer life offensive? You pray regularly, not always for yourself. You're mindly, you have in mind others. As a Christian, have you ever considered how your participation in the church should affect your prayer life? As we examine the first 11 verses of Philippians 1, Paul's going to demonstrate how he prayed for the Philippian church. This is going to allow us to see how we can look at his pattern and be more diligent in praying for one another as a church. So as we consider Philippians 1, Paul's central idea in this text is this. Our fellowship in the Gospel serves as a basis to pray for and encourage one another in godliness. Our fellowship in the Gospel serves as the basis to pray for and encourage one another 
to grow in godliness. That's where Paul is going as he writes these opening verses in Philippians. There are, there's three points that we'll be able to see this morning. We're first going to look at verses 1 and 2, and we'll look at the introduction to the letter to Philippians. And then we're going to look at Paul's prayer. Why he prays for them, and what he prays for them in our time together this morning. So consider with me first the introduction to the Philippian letter. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Follow along as I begin reading Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter begins with a familiar introduction. All of Paul's letters have this introduction. Not just Paul's letters, but letters in that time period contained three basic elements. Who was writing it? Who they were writing to? And then in Paul's case, typically there is a a well wish or a wish that he has for them that they would grow and be encouraged in a particular way. So let's consider those three things in verses 1 and 2. First, we're told who the author of Philippians is. It starts, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Notice they're described as bondservants, not apostles. Paul, in particular, in most of his writings, usually identifies himself as an apostle. But here, and in First and Second Thessalonians, Paul doesn't identify himself as an apostle. Here, it, he is a bondservant. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he invoke his apostleship? Well, here in Philippians, Paul and Timothy are seeking to encourage and build up the Philippian church rather than invoke their apostolic authority to correct serious doctrinal errors. And so, in that way, they are, in essence changing the tone with which they're writing, rather than the authority. They're bondservants. They are bondservants, or slaves of Jesus Christ. In that day, slaves were those who were servants of their Master. They did what they were told to do. And in that same way, Paul and Timothy are bondservants of Jesus Christ. They belong to Christ. They do what He tells them to do. They say what He wants them to say. They are committed to His cause and His glory. So Paul and Timothy are bondservants of Jesus Christ. Well, who are they writing to? We see in verse 1, they are writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. He's writing to the saints in Philippi. By calling them saints, Paul is emphasizing emphasizing they are God's holy people. They are God's people. They belong to Him. But he doesn't just call them saints. He, He uses two other ways to explain what kind of saints they are. They are saints in Christ Jesus. It's the fact that they're in Christ Jesus that makes them saints. It's not anything that they've achieved or done. It's not because of some fancy thing that, that they have attained. It's they are saints in Christ Jesus. They've trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And on that ground, they can be called saints. second thing that's interesting is that these saints are a part of a church. They are saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with 
the bishops and deacons. These bishops and deacons, they are the two offices God gives to the church to help it grow and carry out the mission that God has given the church. So Paul is not writing to a group of solo Christians or isolated Christians or separated Christians. No, he's writing to a group of Christians who are together. Saints who are together. They are a part of the Philippian church. And we see this in our text. He's writing to all of them in verse 1. To all the saints. If you look in verse 4, he says, "...always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all." Verse 7, it's right for me to think this of you all. The end of verse 7, you all are partakers with me of grace. Verse 8, God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So he's not writing this to the first class Christians at Philippi. He's not writing it to a segment of the church at Philippi. He's writing it to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Well, then we come to verse 2 and he gives us his well-wish for them. And it's easy for us, because of how often Paul uses this in his letters, to just gloss over it. We just read through this, the significance of verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul desires for these Christians to have grace He desires for them to continue having that peace that they are experiencing from God the Father and from the Son. And here in this verse, Paul holds the Father and the Son up as equals. Affirming that Jesus is not just related to God, but that He Himself is God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on in Paul's life when he writes this letter? Okay, he's writing to this church and he's writing to encourage them. Where's Paul at in his stage of life when these things are taking place? Well, several times in chapter 1, he indicates that he's in prison. Look with me at verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way of you all because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel, you're partakers with me of grace. In verses 12 to 14, the things that have happened to me have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It's become evident to the whole palace guard. How does he have interaction with the palace guard? To all the rest that my chains are in Christ. This adds an urgency to what Paul is saying. He is not on vacation somewhere in the Mediterranean writing to this church as he's popping bonbons. No, he is in prison, he is in chains. Paul isn't just writing these things as he's living it up. But it's from that position in prison that he writes full of joy and rejoicing. Why is he writing to the Philippian believers? He has a connection with the church at Philippi. He has a long connection with them. This is one of the cities that Paul went to on his second missionary journey. He had opportunity to share the Gospel with Lydia and her household, and they believed. He had the opportunity to share the Gospel with the Philippian jailer and his family, and they believed. This is a church that has faced persecution and opposition to the Gospel with Paul. They've witnessed the suffering and the persecution that he has gone through. And no doubt, as a result of his work in that town, they are facing opposition and persecution. 
This is a church that Paul has had a significant impact on. And they have had a significant impact on him. So he writes to this church from a deeply personal and in a deeply urgent setting. And he begins in verse 3 by saying, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Verses 3-11 through are going to detail a prayer that Paul prays. And so, secondly, so we look at the intro, but secondly, consider why Paul prays for the Philippians. What is it about them particularly? Yes, he's got a connection with them, but why does he pray for them? Look with me at verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the Gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ." So as Paul writes this letter from prison, he demonstrates what it means really to to carry out the practical commands he writes to the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what that looks like. In prison, the first words out of his mouth are, I thank my God for you. He's full of rejoicing. And he's praying for them. There's four reasons Paul gives as to why he prays for the Philippians. First, in verse 3, he's thankful for them. Paul's thanksgiving for the people causes him to consistently pray for the people. He's thankful for the Philippian believers. Therefore, he prays for the Philippian believers. But the thankfulness builds. He isn't thankful for them occasionally or every so often. No, he thanks God for them upon every remembrance of them. He's always thankful for them when he thinks about them. When he thinks about the Philippians, the first thing that pops into his mind is, man, I'm so thankful for the work that God has done in this church. Anytime Paul prays for them, he is filled with thanksgiving. Verse 4, Always, in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. As he prays for the Philippians, this is not just, well, I have to pray for them and be thankful. Whatever. He is filled with joy. Think about that. They are on his mind often. And when he prays for them, he's filled with thanksgiving and joy. But this begs the question, why is Paul thankful for the Philippian believers? Why does he feel this way about them? Verse 5 answers that question. He's thankful for them because they are partners with him in the Gospel and its proclamation. He says, 
for your fellowship in the Gospel from the first day until now. From the first day they believed the Gospel in Philippi, they have been faithful partners in the furtherance of the Gospel. Both in its spread in Philippi, they've been partners with Him in that as He's preaching the Gospel and proclaiming the Gospel, they're doing that in Philippi. So they're partners with Him and that they're doing the same thing together. But it's more than that. They have financially supported and contributed to Him. So they're not just working alongside Him. They are also behind Him. They're supporting Him and encouraging Him. And we see that in Philippians 4. They are partners with Paul in the Gospel. They have that commonality in the Gospel. This partnership in the Gospel is no small matter. It's changed the course of Paul's life. It's changed the course of the Philippians' lives. The Gospel is not just a commodity to share in business. They're not traders of the Gospel. It's something that they have believed. It's something that has taken root inside of them and now they pass it on to others. The truth of the Gospel that Jesus died for our sin and was raised from the dead has changed everything for the Philippians. And it's changed everything for the Apostle Paul. Friend, has the Gospel changed your life? Have you recognized that you are a sinner and by faith have you repented and turned to Christ for salvation? If you have turned to Christ, then you are a part of the fellowship in the Gospel that Paul mentions here. You are a part of that partnership God is at work in you from the first day of your conversion until now. And that is cause for thanksgiving. That's cause to be amazed by the kind grace that God has shown you. But if the Gospel hasn't changed your life, then my friend, you are dead in your sin. Instead of being saved from eternal damnation at the return of Christ, you will be one of those sentenced to eternal punishment for your sins. And that's a sobering reality that ought to weigh heavily on you this morning. Friend, I would beg and plead of you, come to Jesus today. Come and repent of your sin. Turn by faith to trust in Him for salvation that you might be a partner. That you might have fellowship in the Gospel. He says that they have been partners in the Gospel from the first day until now. But Paul doesn't stop at the past and present realities about his partnership with the Philippians. Paul looks ahead to the future. He sees a future reality for all who trust in Christ. And that's the third reason why he prays for them. Paul is confident that Christ will complete the work he started in the Philippians. And we see that in verse 6. See the connection between verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, you have the first day until now. And in verse 6, He has begun a good work in you. That's that first day. He has begun a good work in you. And it's not just going to carry through to the present, but it's going to go all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. He is going to complete it. He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will complete it. He will accomplish it. He will finish it. One of Paul's causes for rejoicing is that his partnership with the Philippians is not a temporary thing. 
It's not something that will be broken by this earth. It isn't in danger of being messed up by the Philippians. The work of God in salvation has begun in their life and it will be brought to completion at the return of Christ. And as Paul considers that, what wells up in his mind and in his heart is joy and thanksgiving. This is something Paul is confident about. In the face of his uncertain future, in the face of the uncertainty about the future of the church in Philippi, as Paul sits in his jail cell, he is confident about this very thing. That He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see the day of Christ used twice in our text. The other instance is in verse 10. He wants them to be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. This is a reference to the return of Christ. His day when those who are in Christ will be transformed from their sinful bodies and natures into eternal sinless bodies and natures. When we receive our glorified bodies. Until that day comes, God will complete the good work that He has begun in us. Paul talks about this in more detail in Ephesians 3, 17-21. As he writes later in the letter, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end, there's looking ahead to the future, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. That is the day of Jesus Christ that Paul speaks of here. The reality of God finishing the work of salvation that He starts in the life of each believer is something that Paul picks up on in Philippians 2 when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. He's he's begun the good work in you. He's presently working in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Paul is confident of that thing. That what God finishes, what God starts, He finishes. The fourth reason why Paul is thankful for them, why he prays for them, is because he loves them with godly love. We see that in verses 7 and 8. He seeks to justify why he loves them. It's right for me to think this of you all. Why? Because I have you in my heart. You're close to me. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. We have this commonality together. You don't believe me? God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul's partnership with the church in Philippi isn't a cold, sterile business relationship. No, it's a warm, dynamic, personal relationship. This church is close to Paul's heart because of their partnership in the Gospel. 
They've been faithful partners with Him both in His chains and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel. They, are, they have commonality in the Gospel and its furtherance. And so because of that, Paul longs for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul drives the point home by invoking God as his witness. He really loves this church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what's the first thing you think of when another brother or sister here at church comes to mind? When they call you and you see their name on your screen, what runs through your mind? When, when Paul would see a Philippian call him or contact him, anytime he would think of them, he would think of them with thanksgiving and joy. Think about this reality. We have more in common with our brothers and sisters in Christ here at church than not in common with them. Because of our fellowship in the Gospel, our partnership in the Gospel, you have more in common with one another as a church than not. That has massive implications for us. How often does it cross your mind to pray for people in the church? Whether you look through the directory or you just think about the people who sit around you at church. I mean, we're kind of clustered, right? We have the the piano back and the piano front. The organ front and the organ back. They're kind of all clustered together. How often do you pray for the people you sit around? As you go through the week, and when you pray for them, what's the attitude that undergirds that prayer? Do you pray for them with thanksgiving and joy? naturally will be inclined to pray for people in the church that are similar to us. In a similar life stage, have similar interests, similar hobbies. Definitely pray for them. But consider some other people in the church you could pray for. Pray for the leadership of the church. Pray for the pastors. Pray for the elders. Pray for the deacons. Maybe you don't think you could name them all off. It's okay. They're in the back of your worship guide. Take that worship guide home and pray for the elders and the deacons this week. Pray for our partners in the Gospel. Pray for Larry and Linda. Pray for Andy and Colette. Pray for our other partners in the Gospel as they are with us in partnership for the furtherance of the Gospel. Pray for those in a different stage of life than you. Older people, pray for young families. Teens, pray for those older saints in our church. Kids, who can you be praying for this week that maybe isn't like you, but you sit around them at church and you could pray for them? Pray for the church while you commute. Pray for the church while you shower. Pray for the church while you shave. Pray for the church while you take a walk. Pray for the church while you're cooking. Pray for the church before you go to bed. Use Paul's template of giving thanks and rejoicing to guide you as you pray for one another as a church. Okay, okay, so I'm supposed to pray for the church. What should I pray for the church? And that's what Paul moves to in verses 9-11. through How does he pray for these people? This I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays for two things for the church in Philippi. 
First, he prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. Paul here is not just referring to an emotion or a warm, fuzzy feeling. True love is rooted in the character of God. So what aspects of God's love is Paul praying will abound more and more in these believers' lives? One of them could be the kindness and compassion that God has towards His people. That He esteems them. He values them. This love is a sober, intentional love that values and esteems others. In chapter 2, Paul will write this, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not look out only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. What God has started in the believer's in Philippi, namely his love in their hearts. The love of God has been shed abroad in them. Paul prays that that love will abound, that it will overflow more and more. But he wants their love to abound more and more in something. That it may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. This is the natural direction for true love to grow. We see the value in Paul's request here when we consider the opposite of these things. He doesn't ask for their love to abound in ignorance and insensitivity. No, he wants their love to abound in knowledge and discernment. He wants their love to be informed. He wants their love to be guided by wisdom. The second thing Paul prays for them is that they would approve the things that are excellent. Think about how that follows from from praying for their love to abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. If their love grows and abounds, then they will need to approve things that really matter. And that's that's the idea behind approving things that are excellent. That we as followers of Christ would approve or give credence to those things that actually matter. Paul doesn't want them to love and approve of things that are out of joint from what Christians ought to be pursuing. What good is a Christian who grows in their love for things that really don't matter? What if instead of your time and energy and affections being directed toward God, they're askew towards other things? Those are not excellent things. Again, later in this letter, Paul writes in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's where he's going later in Philippians 4. But here in Philippians 1, he prays that they would approve those things that are excellent. What's the result that he's hoping for. He's praying that their love would abound. He's praying they would approve things that are excellent. What's the the expected result of his prayer? We see at the end of verse 10 that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. 
This is the expected result. It follows that Paul would pray for their love to abound. That they would approve things that really matter. And the combination of those things would result in a life that is sincere or genuine or pure. It would result in a life that is blameless. In other words, it does not cause offense to others. It doesn't cause anyone to stumble or trip up. In Philippians 2, Paul expands on this when he says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So again, Paul is concerned with their future. He doesn't just want them to be following Christ now. He wants them to continue that. Let your love abound more and more. Approve those things that are excellent with a future reality in mind that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Paul's prayer for them is that they might live the life of the future in the present so that they might be blameless on the day of Christ. Verse 11 then begins, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. Paul describes what will be true of them on the last day in already but not yet language. Filled. That has the idea of something started. It's a present reality, but there's a peace in the future that is still to come. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Where do these fruits of righteousness come from? They are by Jesus Christ. We are already filled with the fruits of righteousness, but we have not attained the final end of our life yet. The good work is not completed. It will be one day. And Paul can stand up and say, I'm confident of this. These fruits which are the good work begun by God. They are by Jesus Christ. Again, God is at work in us as believers to transform us into the image of His Son. Well, all of this is not just in a vacuum though. He's not praying this so that he can go to his next church and say, man, let me tell you about this church in Philippi that I started and that I've been like cultivating and helping. They are killing it. Man, they're doing great. He's not writing these things to them so that he'll have grounds for boasting. Look at how verse 11 ends. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's the ultimate goal of Paul's prayer? His ultimate goal is the glory and praise of God. Through all of what Paul prays and what the Lord does in the lives of the Philippians, Paul knows the ultimate goal of everything is the glory and praise of God. He writes to the Corinthians, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In Romans 11.36, he talks about how all things are from Him, to Him, for Him, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So as we consider what that means for us, think about those groups of people that you can pray for. The groups of people that you sit around in church. The the leadership. The partners in the Gospel. Those who are maybe in a different life stage. 
As you pray for the leaders of the church, pray that they would have wisdom. Pray that they would have humility. Pray that they would have compassion. Pray that their love would abound more and more. Pray that they would approve those things that are excellent. Pray that they would have a hunger for the Word. Pray that they would have boldness to stand for what's right. As you pray for our partners in the Gospel, pray that they would be strengthened. Pray that they would be encouraged. Pray that God would help them to persevere in the work He's called them to do. Pray that their love would abound more and more, that they would approve those things that are excellent. For those that are in a different stage of life than you, and you're trying to think, man, how am I, how, I, I don't even know how to pray for this person. Pray that they would grow in their love for God. Pray that they would wage war on sin. Pray that they would find Christ to be their greatest treasure. You look at someone in the church and you may not know what they're going through, but you can pray these things for them. You can pray that their love would abound and that they would approve those things that are excellent. Whether you're a young person or an older person, whether you've been a member of Limerick Chapel for a week or decades, this is the kind of prayer we need. Each person in in this body needs this prayer. So let's pray for one another. Let's be people who are marked by taking initiative, not because of an emergency or because of a, oh, I really need this. Let me dig it out and use it. Let's be people that are marked by praying for one another. That our love would abound more and more. That we would approve those things that are excellent. That as we consider those in our church family, our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving and joy when we consider the gifts that God has given us. May God give us strength for that. As we consider how this pertains to what we're about to take time to remember this morning, think of how Jesus prayed for His disciples. That He prayed for them. In John 17, He prays that they would be delivered from the evil one. That they would be one just as He and His Father are one. Christ demonstrates what it means to pray And as we consider the work of Christ on the cross, that's the basis for us to be able to pray. It's the fellowship and the Gospel that we share through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's through that that we have the joy and thanksgiving to be able to pray for one another. To pray that He who has begun a good work in us, to be confident that He will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there is so much that You have given us through Jesus Christ. You've changed us. You've filled us with joy. You've filled our hearts with gladness that that by grace, You have saved us. You've begun a good work in us and You haven't taken Your hands off and left it to us. You're going to finish it in us. Lord, we praise You for that. Help us as Your followers to be those people that pray regularly for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That we might take the pattern that Paul lays out for us here. That we would pray that our love would abound more and more. 
That we would approve those things that really mattered. That our affections would be on You, not on things that are on this earth. We know that all of this will be done so that Your name will be honored and glorified. We want all of this to be done. Lord, our desire is that all of this would be done to the glory and praise of God. And it's in His Son's name that we pray. Amen.